Officials are investigating what led a heavily armed man in suburban Minneapolis to fatally shoot two police officers and a firefighter. It's Monday, February 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, following comments by Donald Trump, international leaders meeting in Munich are making plans to protect Europe without help from the U.S. Also this hour, fewer U.S. teens are getting a vaccine that prevents cancers later in life. What happened is that well visits dropped significantly during the pandemic, and well visits are when vaccination happens. Plus new insight into the amount of protein women need to consume to prevent muscle loss. Research shows that about 30% of men and nearly half of women age 50 and older do not consume enough. Sunny in 30s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The United Nations top court has opened a week of hearings today on the legal consequences of Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. The International Court of Justice's opinion is not legally binding and was requested by the U.N. General Assembly two years ago. It is separate from a case filed by South Africa accusing Israel of violating the Genocide Convention. In this case, judges have been asked to review how Israel's policies, quote, affect the legal status of the occupation and what legal consequences arise for all countries from this. While the opinion will not be legally binding, it would carry a great legal weight and moral authority, according to the court. More than 50 countries are due to address judges in the proceedings, including the U.S., China, and Russia. Israel is not participating directly, but has sent written observations. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Russian officials have not said where they're holding the body of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His mother has been turned away from the Arctic penal colony where he had been imprisoned. He died there Friday. Leaders of several nations are demanding information about Navalny's death. Many blame Russian President Vladimir Putin. Flags in Minnesota have been lowered to half-staff today, mourning two police officers and a firefighter killed yesterday. They responded to a domestic disturbance at a home near Minneapolis. An armed man opened fire and killed them. A third officer was injured. Minnesota Congresswoman Angie Craig joined mourners last night at a candlelight vigil. We know that right now is the time to grieve. That's it, as a community, to come together and grieve our community's loss. That's what we have to do, and to support the families that are affected most directly by this terrible, devastating tragedy. The suspect was later found dead. Seven children inside the home escaped without physical harm. Another pair of big storms are hitting California today. They're not as intense as recent systems in the West, but they're pouring water onto land that is already thoroughly saturated. From member station KCRW, Kaylee Wells has more. At this point, weaker storms are a good thing because this time the stakes are higher. We're already primed. Carol Smith is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. So that's why it's a significant storm and we have these concerns of flooding and mudslides and rock slides and um, all those kinds of impacts that we're trying to warn people about. California won't be in the clear till Tuesday night. The heaviest rainfall is expected in central California and last time it was the L.A. area that saw the most rain. The good news is it's bolstering the state's below average snowpack, which Californians rely on for water through the spring. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Stock markets are closed today in observance of the President's Day holiday. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBWAR in Boston. Local residents with ties to Russia are remembering Alexei Navalny. The 47-year-old activist died in a remote Russian prison last week. Yuri Terakov worked on Navalny's 2013 Moscow mayoral campaign. He's now a visiting scholar at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He says Navalny's imprisonment and death shows that Russian President Vladimir Putin is not a peacemaker. There can be no more compromise or even coexistence with the regime of murderers and psychopaths in Moscow. And uh, in my view, it's now the duty of each decent person to do everything in their power to hasten the end of this regime. Terakov says the U.S. should prepare for a new wave of violence in its war against Ukraine. Terakov called Navalny an optimistic and sincere person who genuinely wanted to see Russia as a democratic country. A group of Newton parents are suing the local teachers' union for lost class time after a two-week strike that ended earlier this month. The group says the 11-day strike caused emotional distress, learning loss, and extra expenses. Newton teachers walked off the job amid contentious contract negotiations. Such strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The group incurred hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines during the walkout. The Massachusetts Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education has announced that he'll be stepping down from his position next month. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, special interest groups are beginning their wish lists for qualities they'd like to see in a new leader. Leaders from the Massachusetts Association of School Committees and the Massachusetts Teachers Association say they want a commissioner with experience working inside schools. MTA President Max Page adds that his group wants someone who supports moving away from using standardized tests to judge a school's performance. The new commissioner should be really oriented to trusting public school educators, our members who have produced this first-in-the-nation public education system. As for school committees, leaders of the state association say they want a commissioner who respects the role of educators and local leaders in overseeing public education. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The USS Constitution celebrates President's Day with a 21-gun salute this afternoon. The historic warship will also be open for tours throughout the day. The ship was named for the nation's constitution by the country's first president, George Washington. The USS Constitution launched in the late 1700s and served an important role in the War of 1812. It's 7.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org. The Celtics were off for the NBA's All-Star Weekend, but Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown helped the NBA's Eastern Conference team to a high-scoring win over the West last night. And in a first, Tatum got to meet and shake hands with Celtics legend Larry Bird. The season's next game is Thursday in Chicago. Sunny today with highs in the upper 30s. It gets a lot colder tonight as temperatures dip into the teens. Sunny again tomorrow with a high just above freezing. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Good morning. There are questions swirling around the death of Russia's most prominent opposition figure, Alexei Navalny. But there's no space to demand answers. A Russian rights monitor says more than 400 mourners were arrested by police in more than 30 cities after they turned out for vigils just to mourn Navalny. And since his death in an Arctic prison colony, family and friends have been searching for his body. They insist he was murdered, an accusation the Kremlin calls, quote, rabid. To talk about what all this means for Russia's future, we called up Sergei Redcheknov, Kenko. He's a professor of Russian history at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and he joins me now. Good morning. Morning to you. So after Navalny died, you wrote that hope for Russia died with him. Why do you believe that? Well, this was in a piece for The Spectator, a British magazine, in which I analyzed uh, the future of the Russian protest movement. Navalny was a prominent figure among the protests or the activists in Russia. He certainly was the most prominent. Now, uh, most others are in exile. I think pretty much everybody is either in exile or has been arrested by the regime. Um, and, and that really paints a bleak picture for Russia's future. So basically what you're saying is there is pretty much no opposition without him in Russia to President Vladimir Putin? Well, hope dies last, but we have to remember that Putin has basically broken up the Russian opposition movement such as it existed. In the last two years, Navalny's movement was basically dismantled. Uh, its uh, leaders were uh, chased uh, out of Russia. Uh, now, of course, we have had just today Yulia Navalny, Navalny's wife, pledge that she will continue his struggle. But the question for me is how they will be able to do that inside an increasingly authoritarian Russia where even protesting outside with a placard, you know, or or attending a vigil to Navalny uh, could land one in prison. I mean, as you pointed out, hundreds of mortars have already been arrested. Could this extreme intolerance, though, for dissent in Russia actually backfire in any way? Well, no, because uh, today's Russia, Putin's Russia, is different from the Soviet Union in the sense that uh, those people who really find it difficult to put up with this regime are free to leave by and large for now, and many have. Many have fled Russia. The people who would normally be opposed to Putin are now in Europe, uh, elsewhere in the, in the world. And many, many of those who remain in Russia I would say the vast silent majority of Russians are seemingly politically apathetic and do not want to rise up against the regime. That is the brutal reality, unfortunately, that we have to deal with. Can an opposition from outside of Russia be effective? I think there are very limited options there simply in the sense that, you know, Russia has become uh, a brutal police state and uh, uh, even, you know, challenging the regime from the inside certainly would uh, could, could land one in prison for many, many years. Uh, but, but doing it from the outside is just simply, it's very difficult. And also the question then becomes how do opposition leaders outside of Russia relate to those who are on the inside? Uh, that has been a profound question for many opposition leaders. And that's by by the, by the way, that's the reason why Navalny went back to Russia to begin with. Remember, he was poisoned, he was in Germany, and then he went back because he felt as a Russian politician he had to be back in Russia. Well, look what happened. Hmm. Now, to be clear, how he died is disputed. Russia denies killing Navalny. Much of the world accuses Russia of being behind it. Is there any question in your mind about what happened to Navalny? 
Well, I, I'm, you know, I tend to think that, that, that the regime is responsible for his death, but even if it was an accident, which is, I just don't believe for a second, but even if it was, of course, the regime is still ultimately responsible because he was locked up on fake charges and he was taken, he was taken up north, uh, you know, locked up in a gulag and, and, and died. So what can we say? Sergei Rachenko is a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you for having me. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his government won't be swayed by international pressure and is still making plans for an offensive in southern Gaza in the town of Rafah for the stated goal of eliminating Hamas. But Rafah is where more than one million displaced Palestinians have fled, squeezed up against the Egyptian border. It's the last place so many have sought refuge from the Israeli military campaign, and much of the world is warning against the invasion because of the toll it will take on civilians. For more on this, we called on NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, we've been hearing about a possible Israeli operation in Rafah for weeks now, for a couple of weeks. How likely is it, and where would people go if this happens? Yeah, the Israeli leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, says this is still his intent, that he won't allow any part of the Hamas military force to survive in Gaza. He says that would essentially be a win for Hamas and a loss for Israel. Now, Netanyahu has called for both a military plan and a blueprint to evacuate these more than one million civilians, most of them living in tents. But there's been no word of such a plan, and it would be extremely complicated. So the thinking is, before any Israeli military operation takes place, we're likely to see efforts to evacuate civilians on a large scale. We're not seeing that now, and many of these uh, displaced say they simply have nowhere else to go. All right. Now, um, after more than four months of this, how much damage has the Israeli military done on Hamas? Well, it's been quite considerable. Israeli officials estimate, and this is just an estimate, about 10,000 Hamas fighters have been killed and a similar number injured. We can't independently confirm this, and Hamas refuses to give figures. But if accurate or reasonably so, this is probably half or more of the Hamas fighters. Uh, We've also seen an almost complete halt to the Hamas rocket fire coming out of Gaza into Israel. But Hamas shouldn't be underestimated. This is the analysis of Chuck Freilich, a former deputy national security advisor in Israel. We've been so surprised by their capabilities since the war began. The vast, vast tunnel network, which is just mind-boggling, the rocket capability. I would be cautious in saying that they probably don't have too much in Gaza. They may have, and they have a lot more than we thought. So, Greg, given all that, I mean, what's the war looking like on a day-to-day basis in Gaza? So we're seeing the Israeli tanks and other armored vehicles continuing to gain ground, but they're still facing resistance from Hamas. Israel says this is largely small-scale resistance. Hamas is no longer fighting in larger organized unit, and the main fighting is in the southern city of Han Yunus. Israel says it's in control, but not full control. Han Yunus is about seven miles north of Rafah. This is the distance separating the main Israeli force from the last major stronghold of Hamas, as well as all those displaced Palestinians. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu says his goal is to destroy Hamas militarily and politically. Uh, So far, does that seem realistic? 
Well, on the military side, Israel has made progress. It controls most of Gaza. It says it's defeated 18 of the 24 Hamas battalions. So if accurate, that means Hamas has been badly weakened but not destroyed. On the political side, the Hamas leadership, both internal leaders in Gaza and external leaders, are still intact, and the group has long had public support in Gaza. So it seems politically it's still reasonably strong. All right, that's NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, thanks. Sure thing, eh? Human papillomavirus, or HPV, is a very common virus. It's usually spread through sexual activity and can cause cancers later in life. A 20-year-old vaccine has been really good at preventing those cancers. But data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that the HPV vaccine isn't reaching as many young people. And Pierre's Ping Huang has more. The HPV vaccine is a series of shots recommended for most children around ages 11 or 12. The U.S. government has a goal of getting 80% of adolescents fully vaccinated by the year 2030. How is that going? Here's Maria Villaroyal, a statistician with CDC. I think it's slowly increasing. It's getting there, but we're not quite there yet. Not quite there is optimistic. The latest numbers from CDC show that in 2022, just 63% of teens had all their HPV shots. That's far below the 80% target. The numbers also showed a worrying trend. For the first time in about a decade, the rate of teens starting their HPV series actually fell a little bit. Noel Brewer is a researcher of health behavior at University of North Carolina. He says a lot of routine vaccinations fell behind around that time. What happened is that well visits dropped significantly during the pandemic, and well visits are when vaccination happens. But the data show that HPV vaccines may not be recovering as quickly as other childhood vaccines. They also show some troubling signs in what had been considered something of a health equity success story. For many years, CDC data showed that HPV vaccine coverage was higher for Black and Hispanic children than it was for white children, and higher for kids on Medicaid than those on private insurance. Now, the coverage rate for kids on Medicaid is starting to slip. And there's another, more perennial problem with HPV vaccine coverage. It's not required for school in most states. And because it's for a sexually transmitted virus, it makes many parents uncomfortable or squeamish about making sure their child gets it. Dr. Lakeisha Craig practices adolescent medicine at Medical University of South Carolina. Parents will say, well, my child's not sexually active. And parents have this incorrect assumption that if you protect their children from HPV, that they will be more inclined to have sex at earlier ages. The vaccine protects those who get it well into adulthood. And with high coverage rates, it could wipe out some pretty serious cancers, such as cervical cancer, throat and mouth cancers, that affect both women and men. So some are saying, maybe skip the sex part of the messaging and say instead, get the shot now to prevent cancer later. Ping Huang, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of the United Nations top court holding historic hearings on Israel's actions in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Also, flags are flying at half-staff in Minnesota after a heavily armed man in suburban Minneapolis fatally shot two police officers and a firefighter. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, world leaders meeting in Munich are making plans for protecting Europe without help from the U.S. after inflammatory comments about NATO by Republican frontrunner for President Donald Trump. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. Visit iconic spots around the globe to see how people are adapting to a changing climate in changing landscapes through May 5th, MOS.org. And ThoughtForm Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENS's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. The death of Alexei Navalny has shaken the families of other political prisoners in Russia. Every single family of political prisoners in Russia can now feel the pain and the, the misery and the fright. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. My conversation with the wife of jailed opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. Highs will be in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to the upper teens tonight and skies stay clear tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from JATASA, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. JATASA is committed to serving nonprofits who make the world a better place. J-I-T-A-S-A dot com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. More than 45% of older adults in the U.S., especially women, are affected by a condition known as sarcopenia, which is basically a medical term for loss of muscle. U.S. health officials have launched an awareness campaign to highlight the prevalence The good news is that there are strategies to prevent it. As part of a series on how to thrive as you age, NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Leila. Okay, Allison. So when I was saying sarcopenia, I was like, what am I talking about? But loss of muscle I might have. (laughs) Tell us more about what this is exactly. Well, muscle mass really peaks in our 30s. And then after that, you can slowly start to lose it. And this can really accelerate later in life, which can be a big deal. This really hit home for me this summer when my mother took a bad tumble. Fortunately, she's recovered now, but falls are actually the top cause of death from injury in older people. And I spoke to Dr. Richard Joseph. He's a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He told me loss of muscle strength is really underappreciated. 
I would say that as a country, we are under-muscled, for sure, because we don't really have to use our muscles as much anymore as we once did. But it has a huge impact on our metabolic health and our physical functioning. Now, before he became a physician, Layla, he was a personal trainer. Mm. And he says when it comes to muscle strength, it's basically use it or lose it. Exercise, particularly resistance training, is really key. But there's also another important part of the equation, too, and that's what you eat. Okay, so it makes sense to me that resistance training, working out, is important for muscles, but why diet? Well, there's protein in all of our cells, including our muscle cells, and our bodies are constantly recycling it. New protein is consistently needed to replace old protein. And since we can't really store it, there's a steady demand for a new supply every day. Nutrition scientist Rachel Pajednik explained to me that the amino acids in these protein-rich foods we eat become the building blocks of the new proteins our bodies need. Why it's so important that you eat that protein is there are 20 amino acids that can combine to make protein in your body overall. Nine are what we consider essential. What that means is you have to eat them because your body can't make them. And if you don't consume enough, you can end up with deficiencies, and this is bad for muscle health. So are most people getting enough protein? Most young people and young adults tend to eat the recommended amounts of protein. But by middle age and by the 50s and 60s, research shows that about 30% of men and nearly half of women aged 50 and older do not consume enough. And it turns out that as we age, we tend to need more protein. And if you're exercising a lot, which, as we just said, is the way to build new muscle, that can also increase the amount of protein you need. Here's Rachel Progenic again. So with exercise, you're breaking your muscle tissue down. And then after exercise, you want your muscle to rebuild and regenerate. If you don't have those building blocks around, you're not going to be able to do that. So you have to make sure that you're eating to support your training. And protein is going to provide those building blocks for all the tissues in your body. So how much protein do we need? Well, the recommended amount is set by the Food and Nutrition Board, which is part of the National Academy of Sciences. It's 0.8 grams, so almost a gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. That means for a 150-pound person, they should consume at least 54 grams of protein each day. And then by middle age, lots of experts agree we need more, up to 80 or 95 grams for that 150-pound person. People who are hardcore into exercise, people training for endurance events, often aim for double the recommended amount. Okay, so you just said a lot of numbers, but what does that actually look like on a plate? So, and what are the best sources of protein? Yeah, meat is a top source of protein, though as many people aim to cut back, there are plenty of plant-based alternatives. In fact, a new study published this month found that adequate protein intake in midlife, especially from plant protein, is linked to significantly higher odds of healthy aging. So that's more validation that protein does matter. You know, I've been playing around with a bunch of different combinations of of high protein foods that taste good. I'm using a lot of lentils and chickpeas, both good sources. Greek yogurt is my go-to for breakfast because it's packed with protein. I sprinkle on nuts and seeds into my yogurt. 
And also into my salads, I'm tossing in walnuts, pumpkin seeds. Then when I'm in a hurry, I just take a strained can of tuna, pour it into a big bowl with greens, top it with some Parmesan cheese because hard cheeses have a lot of protein. And it's easy to get 30 or 40 grams of protein in a meal. I've actually been snapping some photos and have posted some online this morning on NPR.org. And I'm asking people to share how they're getting protein on the plate too. Okay, so send us your food pics. Allison, I think I'm ahead of the game here with the lentils and chickpeas. I love lentils and chickpeas. Yeah, it sounds that way. So we've focused a lot on women in this conversation. Why, Allison, are women at higher risk? Well, men tend to be more muscular than women in general, and women tend to lose muscle faster. There are hormonal changes and other aging-related factors. Also, for reasons that aren't so clear, women tend not to eat as much protein, and this can start even at a young age. One nutrition scientist I spoke to said, you can see this in adolescence. Boys tend to eat more meat. Young women may be steered to salads. So part of it could be cultural. That's beginning to change. But the bottom line is this, Layla. Though women are at higher risk of muscle loss, through weight training, resistance training, and the diet to support it, women certainly can continue to fend off muscle loss and stay strong. Here's Rachel Pajetnik again. You can build muscle up into your 70s, your 80s, your 90s. So hope is not lost as you get older. Just do know that it gets more challenging. That's why I'm trying to form new habits now, Layla. I used to be all about the cardio, the bike, or the Stairmaster, but I have swapped this for resistance training three times a week. That's my goal. All right. NPR's Allison Aubrey, thank you so much. Thank you, Layla. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBOR's Morning Edition. We go to Colorado, where school districts are adapting to teach thousands of new international students. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS, and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's president says his military is in urgent need of weapons and ammunition as Russia's invasion of his country nears the two-year mark. NPR's Joanna Kikissis is in central Ukraine. 
a Ukrainian lawmaker told me Ukraine is being held hostage by election year politics in the U.S. She's referring to how Republicans in Congress have been blocking a military aid package to Ukraine. And at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, President Volodymyr Zelensky said, look, we do not have enough weapons and we will lose if we can't get more soon. Meanwhile, Russia already had a much bigger arsenal than Ukraine, and now it's getting even more weapons from Iran and North Korea. First responders are mourning the deaths of two police officers and a firefighter in Minnesota. They were shot and killed by a heavily armed man who barricaded himself and family members inside a house near Minneapolis. Matt Sepik with Minnesota Public Radio is following the investigation. Paul Elmstrand and Matthew Ruge, both 27 and members of the suburban Burnsville Police Department, were killed along with 40-year-old firefighter paramedic Adam Finseth. Investigators say a man barricaded in a house shot them hours into a standoff. The suspect was later found dead. Seven children ages 2 to 15 escaped without physical injury. It's unclear how the gunman died. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Logan Airport plans to use $12 million in federal funding to make improvements. The funding is part of a $1 billion federal plan to strengthen air travel infrastructure in the U.S. Officials say the money will be used to expand and renovate a traffic control tower at Logan. Bradley International Airport in Connecticut and Portland International Jetport in Maine are also receiving federal funds. First Lady Jill Biden is headed to Massachusetts this week. She'll be in Cambridge tomorrow for a fundraiser and event on women's health research. Her visit is part of the White House Initiative on Women's Health Research. Wildlife officials are asking for your help in taking a census of the birds in our area. WBUR's Dan Guzman explains that today is the last day of the Great Backyard Bird Count. The event is exactly what it sounds like. You're asked to go outside for about 15 minutes and count how many birds you see and which kinds, and then pass it along at birdcount.org. The better understand of the needs of birds, the habitat they're using, and where they are in the world, um, we need people to, to get out and, and count them. Scientists alone can't be the ones to do this effort. That's John Herbert, the director of bird conservation for Mass Autobahn. He says the count helps scientists figure out how climate change is affecting the world of birds. Species have declined, even more common ones that you might see at your feeder, like chickadees or various sparrows. More than 300,000 people took part in the last count. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Dorchester is getting into the spirit of today's holiday. The museum has a slate of family programming to learn about past and current presidents. There's also a space to write letters to President Biden. Rachel Floor is the JFK Library Foundation's executive director. She says she hopes visitors can learn a bit about how the presidency works. Creating hands-on programming where people can really get immersed in an experience of presidential history, but also contemporary presidential life is a great entry point for especially young people to start thinking about how they can be part of the civic life of our country. Activities run from 11 to 4 today. Admission is free for kids with the purchase of an adult ticket. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. 
Boston's hockey teams are looking for big wins after a losing weekend. The Bruins lost in overtime to the Los Angeles Kings on Saturday. They've lost five of their last six games all at home. They skate at the Garden again today at 1. Meanwhile, the Boston professional women's hockey team also lost in overtime Saturday, dropping a game to New York. They play Ottawa at home today at 4.30. Highs in the upper 30s today under clear skies. Tonight, temperatures may dip into the teens. Highs in the mid-30s tomorrow, and skies will be clear again. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. If there's one word that characterized this weekend's meeting of world leaders in Germany, it might be anxiety. Each year, the Munich Security Conference gathers political figures, analysts, and journalists to talk about the state of the world. Reporter Terry Schultz was there, and she joins us now. Good morning. Hi, Leila. So, Terry, how was this year different from other Munich conferences you've attended? Well, there was already a lot of uncertainty in the relationship between the U.S. and Europe going into the conference. The war on Ukraine is going badly for Kyiv. The $60 billion U.S. aid package for Ukraine is blocked by Republicans on Capitol Hill. And, of course, Donald Trump has invited Russia to attack NATO allies who he says don't spend enough on defense. But then on Friday, as things got underway, an absolute shock went through the conference. We were all getting notifications on our phones and people were gasping as they learned that Alexei Navalny, the most prominent opposition figure in Russia, had died suddenly in an Arctic penal colony where Russian President Vladimir Putin had jailed him. Navalny's wife was there in Munich. Yulia Navalny had decided to take the stage in an unscheduled appearance, looking understandably pale and shaken. Here she is. I didn't know if I should come out here or go straight to my children, she said, with a voice quivering. But she said her husband would want her there, demanding that Putin pay a price for his death. It really moved the audience. Even in her sorrow, she was just utterly composed and driven. So she's demanding accountability there. Is there any indication that European leaders will do anything about Navalny's death? There's some indication Yulia Navalny is actually here in Brussels today to talk to European Union foreign ministers, and they are considering what their joint response should be to the Navalny death. Mm -hmm. But Lithuania's foreign minister, Gabrielius Landsberg, has told me in Munich, he believes the treatment of Navalny demonstrates Putin's absolute sense of impunity and is just one more sign that his country on NATO's eastern flank is at risk of a Russian attack. Here he is. Why Russia would do it? Not because it has a superior firepower than than NATO, but because we're not deterring. That means that they they might start believing that we won't be able to answer, that the answer is not coming, that we will promise some devastation and there will be none. I mean, you hear that sense of concern there, and Mm -hmm. there's also the concern about the U.S. not being really a reliable ally in this moment. Did Europeans hear anything from Vice President Kamala Harris or other U.S. politicians there in Munich that did reassure them after Donald Trump's comments? 
I'd actually say, Leila, it's probably the contrary. The vice president emphasized that she and President Biden believe in NATO. But listen to the message that even this committed transatlanticist, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Evo Dalder, told me he's giving his European friends. Here he is. You, the Europeans, need to start thinking about how do you prepare yourself for a world in which you will have to use your own capabilities to defend yourself. Something you haven't thought about for 75 years, to be frank. Now you really need to do it. And Dalder says this holds true to some extent, no matter who wins the White House in November. Okay, so that doesn't sound very encouraging for Europe or maybe even worse for Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky was there also. What was his message? Well, Zelensky is again just pleading with allies to send more weapons and ammunition. He insists Ukraine can defeat Russia with enough Western support. But he still says that he can win the war. And NATO's top military commander, Admiral Rob Bauer, believes him and says the West should stay positive. You should also know that pessimists don't win wars. But Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance, a Trump ally, said in Munich, it's time to stop the war. For Ukraine to negotiate a peace deal with Russia and most European NATO allies reject anything other than a Russian defeat. So next year's Munich Security Conference may have to deal with even more insecurity. That's Terry Schultz in Brussels. Thank you. Thank you, Leila. Child welfare agencies often try to place kids with families of the same race or with similar cultural or religious backgrounds. In some communities, though, that can be tough to do. Michigan, for instance, has a significant Muslim population, but only a few licensed Muslim foster care homes. WDET's Nargis Rahman gives us this report on a push to change that. When she was 13 years old, Najla Al-Mayali entered the foster care system when her parents divorced. She and her three sisters were separated. Now, 20 years old, she lived in seven foster homes, five of which were not Muslim. There was no halal food. There was no going to the masjid on Friday. There was no salah, no what I was used to. Al-Mayali says she felt that her non-Muslim foster parents didn't care about her religion. Food was not prepared a certain way. She didn't go to the mosque for the traditional prayer. She wasn't comfortable wearing hijab to cover her hair. I felt like I was at home. About 240,000 Muslims live in Michigan. Jessica Sweet, who recruits foster parents for the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, says the state doesn't collect religious information. However, she says many Muslim kids in foster care end up in non-Muslim homes. Right now, it really is based on the anecdotal information that we're getting, reaching out to county offices and having them hand count this information and send it to us. Samina Zahur became a foster parent in 2012 after learning about the need from a sermon at her local mosque. Her friend, lifelong educator, Rania Shabib, became licensed in 2015. Shabib says they realized many people were not aware there was a need for Muslim foster parents, so they created the Muslim Foster Care Association. There were some gaps within the foster care system and the Muslim community, and with my fostering experience, I knew that with the insight that I had as a foster parent, Samina and I could work to bridge those gaps. Shabib says there are only about 10 licensed Muslim foster care homes in the state, while her organization serves more than 200 Muslim foster care kids every year. Its work expanded quickly from making holiday Eid baskets and care packages at the end of Ramadan to working with federal and state agencies to do a better job of placing Muslim children. It was sort of like a grassroots. We would do these panel discussions with both different communities, and then people started saying, well, where can we find out more information? Last November, about 300 current and potential foster parents gathered to learn more. 
Mona Mossed, the association's domestic foster care program coordinator, says the fundraiser was also held to help break the stigma surrounding foster care. Still, she says, persuading Muslim families to become licensed foster care homes is a challenge because the system can be intrusive. I mean, foster children are always under the watch. Caregivers are always in and out of the home, therapists, licensing workers. And it's very hard for the foster family to adjust to that lifestyle. The state does work with the association to train staff and families, regardless of their background. But Shabib says Muslims can step up to do more. There's so much to talk about in this area of foster care. And in Islam, it's part of our faith tradition, but unfortunately it's not something that we're at the forefront of. And we want the Muslim community to be at the forefront of foster care. And she encourages more Muslims to take the first step by volunteering or becoming a mentor to Muslim children. For NPR News, I'm Nargis Brahman in Detroit. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, a strategically important town in eastern Ukraine has fallen to Russia as Ukraine struggles amid dwindling supplies. Sunny in upper 30s today, clear skies in upper teens tonight, sunny in mid-30s tomorrow, it's 30 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy. Heat pump water heater replacements, same day or next day services. Learn how you can heat smart this winter at GoEndlessEnergy.com. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. People due to receive part of a settlement with Boston Globe media partners are getting their payments. Officials involved with the case say those payments were sent out on Friday. The $5 million settlement was reached last May. Officials say the Globe was tracking user information without permission. Two Massachusetts banks are set to merge. Abington Bank will merge into North Shore Bank. Officials tell the Boston Business Journal the move is not expected to result in any layoffs or branch closures. The community bank will now have 25 locations in the eastern part of the state. Delta will soon begin direct flights between Boston and Honolulu. Hawaiian Airlines is the only other airline to offer that direct flight. The flights will run November through April. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Cities across the country are struggling to accommodate tens of thousands of young people who recently crossed the southern border. The challenges extend to public schools that are trying to provide education for these new international students without additional state or federal funds. Colorado Public Radio's Jenny Rundine reports. Last fall, several Colorado school districts asked the state for help 
As the pace of migrant children enrolling accelerated, some weren't prepared. The Colorado Department of Education's Victory Molina. They're taking regular-sized classrooms and they're splitting them in half and putting double the amount of kids in there because they're bursting at the seams with the amount of students now. Denver Public Schools is averaging 200 new arrivals a week. Districts have well-established practices for welcoming newcomers. But Amanda Clayton of the Adams 12 District north of Denver says 800 new students swamp them. We need to hire more staff, buy more materials, make sure we have building space for them, and all of that comes with budget asks. At least half the newcomers arrived after the state's official student count day in October. That means no state funding for those students. Schools are already short on mental health counselors. And, says Commissioner of Education Susana Cordova, Because of the teacher shortage, it's going to be very difficult and challenging to recruit bilingual teachers to schools to work with this population. Recently, English language educators from about 20 Colorado districts rolled up their sleeves and formed a newcomer cohort to share strategies and ideas. Next year. Today, some line the walls of this high school classroom in Lafayette near Boulder to hear from students like Ignacio from Mexico. My favorite class is, is algebra and English. My hardest class is algebra. The educators take notes. This school does a full intake session to understand the kids' backgrounds. Schedules include two periods of learning English, along with other classes like history, all in English. Another student, Valeria, says even her teachers who don't speak Spanish write key words on the board in Spanish. These student schools requested we use only their first names to protect their privacy and because many escape very dangerous situations in their home countries. Every week, the English language teachers send out tips to all the other teachers in the school. There are community liaisons, informal Latino parent groups, wellness rooms, and a new offering, Cafecito, where kids can meet for group therapy. Here's teacher Lauren Jager. We also do lunch and homework help. It's just a place to hang out, a place to get help with algebra tests or whatever. District officials ask the students for their suggestions. Alvaro from Guatemala says he wants to study mechanics to help his uncle. A district official says they'll find a way to get him to the district's tech center to take classes. Things to take back to your own district. Back at district headquarters, educators share tips for tackling multiple challenges. How do they assess the new students? What if they're homeless? What if they've lost their transcript in the jungle on the way here? Do they repeat classes? Because that's a struggle for our kids. I've taken biology and you want me to take it again. These Colorado educators say they're committed to helping every child who enrolls. But if the unprecedented surge continues, some officials say it's not sustainable. For NPR News, I'm Jenny Brendine. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, Poland's public television system became a propaganda outlet under the previous government. Now the country's newly elected government is taking steps to turn it back into a bona fide news operation. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. 
take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The U.N.'s top court holds a hearing today to consider the legality of Israel's occupation of lands sought for a Palestinian state. The Russian military has taken a strategically important town in the eastern part of Ukraine. And officials are looking for a motive after two police officers and one firefighter were killed in suburban Minneapolis yesterday. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. We'll Member have, FDIC. We'll have clear skies and temperatures in the upper 30s today. It falls to the upper teens tonight and skies stay clear. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. All right, what you're hearing is the infectious laughter of the bonobo. A group of researchers recently discovered that these great apes use humor, just like humans do. Erica Cartmill is a professor of anthropology at Indiana University studying primate humor. The setup and the punchline was something that I really wanted to explore in apes, to see how often this kind of structure appeared, what forms it took, and how widely spread this kind of behavior was. Cartmill worked with researcher Isabel Laumer, who's affiliated with UCLA, and together they studied videos of apes in San Diego and Leipzig, Germany. We looked for behaviors that appeared provocative, playful, but also had a bit of a naughty streak. <laughs> Cartmill says conclusions about the playful teasing are hard to pin down. We struggled quite a bit with trying to figure out what is a provocative behavior. And, and the best working definition that we could come up with is it's something that's difficult to ignore. So what exactly does it look like when apes tease one another? Laumer says it's not too far off from what humans do, with a few exceptions. Poking, hitting, hindering movement, body slam, pulling on body, these were within the top five behaviors. And when they're playing, eye contact helps keep playtime from turning too violent, like with orangutans. Hair pulling was quite frequent, and this is probably because they have this long hair, and it's probably fun to pull at this hair. <laughs> the researchers say playful behavior helps all sorts of animals socialize with one another. So Carmel says they're crowdsourcing new material to study other species. We're hoping that we'll be able to create a repository where people can contribute anecdotes and examples and potentially even video of the playful teasing behavior that they see around them. Maybe these could replace your favorite cat videos. A rock band has returned years after enduring a tragedy. NPR's Taylor Haney reports a new album from the group Granddaddy was inspired by a car radio. Granddaddy's frontman, Jason Lytle, was rolling down a lonely highway between Oregon and Nevada. The radio sang a warbling number by Patti Page. 
I was dancing with my darling to the Tennessee walls. The song was seven decades old, but brand new to him. I was just like, what is that? Like, what's happening here? What is this genre? Is this bluegrass? It's like slow and sweet and kind of lilting. I remember the night and the Tennessee walls. It was in my attempt to hunt down this genre that I realized, why don't I just make it myself? When Granddaddy started in the 90s, their genre felt more like indie rock. But indie rock shakes hands with bluegrass on their new album, Blue Wave. Going to the cabin, going to the cabin, to the cabin of my mind. Jason Lytle always wanted to make an album that was just one thing, one mood. Here, it's pedal steel guitar nestled into a warm bed of synths. It feels to him like that quiet sense of wonder you get in the foothills of the mountain west. You have like some really wide, dense synthesizers kind of creating the landscape, and the pedal steel could even be considered the weather or the sky or the changing of the colors in the sky. This is Granddaddy's first album of new music since 2017. Just two months after that album came out, bassist Kevin Garcia died of a stroke. He and Lytle founded the band together. In a statement, Granddaddy said he was, quote, an actual angel. He navigated life with a grace, a generosity, and a kindness that was utterly unique. It's a loss that Lytle is still processing. You know, we had a lot of things planned up until the actual point of his death. And then everything was just kind of shut down. Their normal creative process didn't work anymore. Lytle says the way things would usually go, he would feel an instinct every few years, like a migratory bird. Something would tell him to hole up, write, and record an album pretty much by himself. Then he and the rest of the band would work out how to play the music live. But with Garcia gone, that collaboration couldn't happen anymore. Like a very fond and familiar memory that I have is creating the harmony parts. You know, I can't work on that stuff and not not imagine. It's like this this moment is being defined by these harmony vocals right now. You know, he's always going to pop into my head. For this album, Granddaddy has no tour planned. It felt wrong even to consider it. That to me is like the hardest part. You know, what would being in a room and playing without Kevin be like? I don't even like thinking about it. And obviously, you know, everyone has to move on and grow up and, and uh, but it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's still hard to think about. Ducky, he actually was a big deal. Even being so small and found in a field. In one of his new songs, called Ducky, Boris, and Dart, the singer encounters a cat. Ducky was a little kitten that I found in an almond orchard on a bike ride out in the hot sun that I tried to save and ended up dying. Later in the song, a bird flies into his truck. He pulls over and tucks the stunned creature into a sage leaf. 
It's an act of comfort, like the sad songs that have called to him since childhood and comfort him still. I was just always uh, drawn to the sad ones. Like there was something richer and deeper. That's where you tend to feel not so alone. Taylor Haney, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Sunny in upper 30s today. Clear skies tonight as temperatures plummet to the upper teens. Sunny and a bit cooler tomorrow, only in the mid-30s, then near 40 on Wednesday, and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 31 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Historic hearings begin at the U.N.'s top court over the legality of Israel's occupation of land sought for a Palestinian state. It's Monday, February 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Russia's military has seized a strategically important town in eastern Ukraine. The days before the withdrawal were very grim. Ukrainian soldiers on the ground were writing on Instagram describing hellish scenes of constant bombing and artillery fire. Also this hour, Poland's new government is purging the country's public television system of the previous government's far-right employees. They were transformed into propaganda outlet whose main task was to attack the opposition. Plus, in another controversial move, Texas is building a base for National Guard troops policing the southern U.S. border. Sunny in 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russia says its troops have now established full control over a key town in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, it's the first major ground victory for Russian forces in nearly nine months of fighting. Russia's defense ministry said its forces have flushed out remaining Ukrainian fighters from the grounds of a Soviet-era factory in Adyivka, ending one of the bloodiest sieges of the war in Ukraine to date. Control of Adyivka provides Russia with a key military staging ground for additional advances into Ukrainian territories Moscow claims to have annexed but does not control. Ukraine's military said it ordered a retreat from Adyivka to save troops both outnumbered and outgunned as Western military aid has slowed. Russian President Vladimir Putin congratulated troops on their victory, one that gives a boost to the Kremlin leader ahead of March presidential elections in which he faces no real competition. Charles Maines, NPR News. 
Moscow. Meanwhile, Russian officials have not released the cause of death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He died last Friday at the Arctic Penal Colony, where he was imprisoned. Former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney told CNN Russia's president is why Navalny died. What Vladimir Putin did to Navalny is what retribution looks like in a country where the leader is not subject to the rule of law. Navalny's mother and his lawyer are still trying to gain custody of his body. Officials in Minnesota are lowering state flags to half-staff in honor of two police officers and a firefighter killed near Minneapolis yesterday. They were responding to a domestic disturbance in a home with an armed suspect. A third police officer was wounded. The suspect also died. There were seven children in the home they escaped without physical injury from the incident. The Biden administration says a semiconductor company in upstate New York is being awarded a grant of $1.5 billion. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the money is from a bill passed by Congress in 2022 to boost computer chip manufacturing in the U.S. The company, Global Foundries, makes chips used in everything from cars to smartphones. It also partners with the military on chips used for national security. This $1.5 billion is expected to go towards a new facility and the renovation of two others in New York and Vermont. This funding is part of the $39 billion in the Chips and Science Act that's geared towards manufacturing incentives. And a component of it is expected to be used for job training. There have been concerns that despite the new semiconductor facilities being created, there may not be enough qualified workers to fill them. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he's going to start construction of an 80-acre base in Eagle Pass. It's on the border with Mexico. Hundreds of Texas National Guard troops will be based there to stop migrants from illegally crossing the border. The Texas National Guard troops are also preventing U.S. Border Patrol troops from entering a park in Eagle Pass. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's President's Day. That's a federal holiday, meaning the post office and other federal buildings are closed today. Most local offices are also closed around the state today. Meanwhile, most retail shops and grocery stores will be open. The tea and ride service will operate on a Saturday schedule. The commuter rail will be on its weekend schedule. Most schools are closed, and for many K-12 students, it's also the first day of February vacation. A grassroots group in Boston is calling on the city to pay $15 billion in reparations from slavery. According to NBC Boston, the proposal splits the money between direct payments, educational programs, and new financial institutions. The group, the Boston People's Reparations Commission, is different from the city's reparations task force, which is currently studying the issue. The city task force was established in 2022. The city of Boston observed Lunar New Year yesterday. As WBUR's Eliana Marcou reports, it's the first time the city has recognized Lunar New Year as an official public holiday. Hundreds gathered to celebrate the Year of the Dragon as troops performed the lion dance to the sound of drums and cymbals through Chinatown. Dancers threw oranges to crowds in the packed streets to wish people luck and prosperity. Mayor Michelle Wu was among the officials who attended. The year of the dragon is very special in the zodiac. The dragon is the ultimate symbol of protection and strength and compassion and really bringing everyone together under one common cause. We're going to need that strength this year. There's a lot we have to get done. Troop members in bright costumes stopped by local shops and restaurants and lit firecrackers at the doors to bring owners blessings for the coming year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Eliana Marcoux.
The Adams Historical Park in Quincy is celebrating President's Day with a week of events. The National Park site will be open throughout the week, including today's holiday. Historic reenactments, outdoor tours, and children's programming are scheduled through Friday. The park is the site of the birthplaces of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. It's 8.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And the listeners who support this NPR station. The biggest Boston news out of the NBA's All-Star Weekend was that Jason Tatum had never met Celtics legend Larry Bird. That changed last night as the two shook hands and spoke on the sideline before tip-off. Tatum, Jalen Brown, and the Eastern Conference team then went on to beat the West 211-186. to in your forecast, sunny today with highs in the upper 30s. It gets a lot colder tonight as temperatures dip into the teens. Sunny again tomorrow with a high just above freezing. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's been nearly two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And this weekend, Russia secured an important win. Its forces occupied a strategically important town in Ukraine's east. Now, Ukrainian soldiers spent months defending it, but they're running low on ammunition and weapons. The White House blames Congress for holding up military aid, and Ukrainians fear more losses without more support. Joining us now to discuss all this is NPR's Joanna Kakissis, who is in central Ukraine. Joanna, first tell us about this town and why its occupation by Russia is significant. So, A, the town's name is Avdivka, and in Ukraine, it's been a symbol of resistance. Russia has been attacking Avdivka for 10 years, ever since Russian proxies occupied part of eastern Ukraine back in 2014. The Russians really stepped up their attacks on Avdivka last October, destroying nearly the entire town and driving out nearly all of the 30,000 residents. Russian President Vladimir Putin congratulated his soldiers on the Kremlin website, and now Putin can tout this battlefield gain ahead of next month's presidential elections. Ukrainians, of course, are heartbroken. They're on edge. The capture of Avdivka sets up Russia for more gains in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, and the White House noted that uh, Ukraine's lack of ammunition played a role in Russia's takeover of Avdivka. Uh, Is that what Ukrainians are saying, too? Yes, many are saying that. A Ukrainian lawmaker told me Ukraine is being held hostage by election year politics in the U.S. She's referring to how Republicans in Congress have been blocking a military aid package to Ukraine. And at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, President Volodymyr Zelensky said, look, we do not have enough weapons and we will lose if we can't get more soon. Meanwhile, Russia already had a much bigger arsenal than Ukraine, and now it's getting even more weapons from Iran and North Korea. the Ukrainian soldiers defending Avdivka also said that they were outgunned by the Russians and on land that's flat with no cover for them. Uh, the 110th Mechanized Brigade defended Avdivka for two years, and they shared some videos with NPR of soldiers talking about the withdrawal. Here's a soldier identified by his military call sign, Munch. He's heard here through an interpreter. We hit 
ну, мягко кажучи, важко. The exit from Avdiivka was difficult, to put it mildly. Everyone knows the Russians have no problems with the supply of ammunition, no problems with firepower, so they shoot everything at us. Everything possible was flying there. Munch also mentioned how over months of intense fighting, the Russians would just send wave after wave of soldiers. No matter how many Russian soldiers were killed, there were always more coming. Ukrainian soldiers were about to be encircled in Avdivka, so military chief Oleksandr Sirsky decided that the human cost of keeping them there was just too high. So does the fall of this city signal that maybe Russia is gaining momentum in this war? Well, in the short term, I think the answer is yes. In Munich, Zelensky said Ukraine is trying to build its own arsenal, but also said Ukraine cannot defend itself from Russia alone. Here he is. Please do not ask Ukraine when the war will end. Ask yourself, why is Putin still able to continue it? Zelensky is once again asking the West to not see this as only Ukraine's war, but one that will grow much larger if Russia keeps winning. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Dnipro, Ukraine. Joanna, thank you. You're welcome. European leaders are bracing for the possibility of a more isolationist United States. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump has repeatedly threatened to pull the U.S. out of NATO. And lately, he's been saying that if he's reelected, he won't protect NATO members that fail to meet defense spending targets. Vice President Kamala Harris sought to reassure European allies at the Munich Security Conference on Friday. We must be unwavering and we cannot play political games. We turn now to Catherine Fieschi. She's a political analyst and fellow at the European University Institute. Joins us now from Paris. Mark Ruta is the outgoing prime minister of the Netherlands. He said at this conference, quote, that Europe should actually stop moaning and whining and nagging about Trump. So, Catherine, do you think European states can actually ramp up defense spending and ammunition production regardless of what happens in the U.S.? Well, I think that Mark Rutte did make a, a really good point. Europe uh, had become, you know, far too complacent over the past few decades. I think it's got the message. It's got the message that regardless of whether or not there is a second Trump presidency, things are not likely to uh, get better and that the United States will probably be otherwise engaged and, and pivot uh, back to their original plan, which is, you know, to, to be more involved in, in the Pacific. So Europe needs to get its act together, but I would argue that it is it is trying to do so. It is increasing its NATO spending to meet the target of 2%. Each, uh, each member state is doing that. Uh, the European Union is behaving more as a geopolitical uh, entity since 2019. They've just released 50 billion for Ukraine. France and Germany have entered into separate bilateral security agreements in order to defend Ukraine, each worth uh, 3 billion. So Europe is stepping up to defend Ukraine, but it also knows that it needs to step up to defend itself more broadly. Uh, and, you know, that is partly also an enlarged EU with the Western Balkans and Ukraine, but also an enlarged NATO with Sweden, hopefully soon, and, and Finland already new members. If Europe were to do all that, everything you just mentioned, would that actually not be a great thing for the United States' influence in Europe? 
I mean, I think that in terms of the United States, you know, the Europeans have argued for a long time that there should be a European pillar within NATO. Um, and it's never been very clear to the Europeans whether the United States would resent that, that kind of a measure of autonomy, or whether in fact they would take it as, as Europe taking uh, its own responsibility. Kissinger, you know, years ago basically said he had no problem with a stronger Europe at the at the heart of NATO. Um, and I think that no matter what, Europe has has to start thinking about being able to expand its own strategic capabilities and in many ways, you know, very specifically to be able to deploy a, a nuclear shield and a nuclear umbrella over Europe in a, in a rather autonomous fashion. If America stops helping Ukraine, Catherine, what are Europe's options there? I mean, how prepared would European powers be to step up and help out Ukraine? I think that they are able to help out Ukraine. I think that the amount of money and uh, weapons that the United States supply is very, very hard to match. The Europeans know this, and therefore this is why they do want to find a way to bring the parties to a negotiating table. That's Catherine Fieschi at the European University Institute. Catherine, thanks. You're welcome. El Nino, the warmer-than-average Pacific Ocean temperatures can create milder, drier winters in parts of the Northwest and the Rockies. That heightens the risk of wildfires at a time when pay raises for Forest Service firefighters are stalled in Congress. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. Things are pretty weird this winter, at least here in central Idaho. In the mountain town of Ketchum, locals like Scott Runkle, a high school science teacher, all recount their own moments when that hit home. I went down to Littlewood Reservoir in the beginning of January to go ice fishing and it wasn't frozen. And that's never happened. At 5,800 feet, Runkle has been watching the winter rain hitting the street outside a cafe with some dread. It's actually three degrees Fahrenheit warmer on average in the Rockies than it was in 1980. And scientists warn climate change could mean even stronger, warmer El Ninos like this in the future. You worry about the water, the snowpack and the farming and the fire season when the soil's drier. So it just has these snowballing effects that lead to compounding problems. And in the face of these compounding problems, there's another crisis. Right now is when fire managers are staffing up for the more intense summer season. Now, for years, federal firefighters have complained of low wages, but money for increased pay for some 17,000 workers has been tangled up in the congressional budget impasse since last September. We need a permanent fix. Lucas Mayfield is a former Forest Service firefighter who now runs an advocacy group called Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. In 2021, President Biden gave federal wildland firefighters about a $20,000 pay bump. That ran out last fall. And for now, federal agencies are maintaining the pay raises by dipping into their wildfire preparedness and suppression budgets. Mayfield says that uncertainty makes it hard to hire and keep people. The workforce can't wait any longer. They're leaving. The jobs aren't being filled. Before that 2021 pay bump, rookie firefighters on the front lines of this country's wildfire crisis were making about 13 bucks an hour. Federal firefighters say morale is at an all-time low and there's mass quitting going on. Abel Martinez sees this firsthand on the Angeles National Forest in Southern California, where he's an engine captain. If the money goes away, we're screwed. 
The most troubling, he says, is that veteran firefighters are leaving or retiring due to the budget impasse, including locally several fire bosses. And with them, he says, goes a lot of institutional knowledge. You're losing people that have 15, 20 years of experience. Those are the people that usually make the, the critical decisions on these large fires. And Martinez worries that could lead to more accidents and wildfires getting even more out of control. A bill that would make the pay increases permanent did pass out of a Senate committee, which gives Lucas Mayfield of the grassroots group some hope. He's been looking out his window with alarm at brown dry hills in Bozeman, Montana, where the snowpack is at a record low. My opinion or my soapbox is that as a country, we need to recognize and fund the efforts to address the wildland fire crisis and pay and appropriate the funds needed to get the work done. The latest fiscal cliff deadline in Congress comes in early March. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. We're following news this morning of the United Nations top court holding historic hearings on Israel's actions in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Also, flags are flying at half-staff in Minnesota after a heavily armed man in suburban Minneapolis fatally shot two police officers and a firefighter. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Texas is doubling down on its plan to have National Guard troops police the southern U.S. border by building a controversial base for those troops. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners and by Boston University's NEH Distinguished Teaching Professorship. Presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Tsai Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. The death of Alexei Navalny has shaken the families of other political prisoners in Russia. Every single family of political prisoners in Russia can now feel the pain and the, the misery and the fright. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. My conversation with the wife of jailed opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after four today on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. Highs will be in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall into the upper teens tonight. Skies stay clear tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Kresge Foundation. Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at Kresge.org. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. 
for nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. In Poland, they call it the Iron Broom. It describes the speed and aggressiveness the new government is employing to restore democratic institutions. This comes after eight years of one-party rule that threatened one of Europe's biggest democracies. A historic election in October changed all that. Part of the new government's effort to rebuild the country's democracy involves returning a popular national TV broadcaster from a right-wing propaganda tool back to a bona fide news organization. Here's NPR's Rob Schmitz. It's 7.30 in the evening in Warsaw, and national news program TVP Info is going live to millions across the country. Producers in a crowded control room scurry around and peer through a narrow window into a studio where the host reads from a teleprompter. Everyone here looks a little nervous. There are two reasons for this. One, nearly all of them are new hires. And two, this is a temporary studio while the police clear the station's headquarters of the last remnants of the old government. The former leadership are refusing to give up our headquarters, and up until recently we're refusing to leave the building, so we're here in this old sports newsroom, says TVP Info director Pavel Puska, who's been on the job for less than a month. We're lacking desks, computers, we're having problems sending and receiving transmissions, but we're figuring it out, he says with a shrug. To understand why the national broadcaster is in this predicament in the first place, we need to rewind the clock to 2015 when the right-wing Law and Justice Party took power. They were in a hurry to take over public media and they used legal gimmick to do it. Jacek Kuharczyk directs the Institute of Public Affairs in Warsaw. He says the Law and Justice Party ignored the fact that there was already an executive board in charge of the national broadcaster, and they created another one, changing public media into a broadcaster that served the party's political interests. They were transformed into propaganda outlet on the part of ruling party, whose main task was to attack and demonize the oppositional parties and politicians. The most notorious case of this came in 2019, when the mayor of the port city of Gdansk, who, according to the city, was the subject of nearly 1,800 negative TVP stories about him in one year alone, was stabbed to death on stage at a charity concert. The murderer took the microphone and blamed the mayor and his civic coalition party for imprisoning him assigned to many in the party that TVP's negative coverage about the mayor's liberal policies shared the blame for his murder. Protests erupted against TVP, but Kuharczyk says law and justice refused to change the tone of its content because it was crucial to keeping it in power. So they were, on one hand, an instrument of party propaganda, but they were, more importantly, an instrument of fueling polarization in Poland. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which monitors elections, mentioned in all of its reports since law and justice took power in 2015 that Polish elections are not equal due to a lack of access to impartial media. The European Union cut off tens of billions in funding to Poland for the damage the previous government inflicted on both the judiciary and public media, funds that began to be reinstated once voters elected a new liberal government last October committed to doing away with law and justice's changes. 
and the new government did just that. On December 20th, just days after the government of incoming Prime Minister Donald Tusk formally took power, his new culture minister fired the leadership of TVP and appointed new management boards. This was the final broadcast of the old regime, a visibly shaken host telling viewers a signal for TVP was abruptly shut off for the first time in Polish history and that the entire leadership had been fired. He then takes his clipboard and walks off camera. The broadcaster went off the air for nine straight days as the old and new leadership of the country faced off and as Law and Justice Parliament members staged a sit-in at TVP Info's downtown headquarters. Never before any government took to turning off the TV signal without any legal grounds for it. Paweł Jablonski is a parliamentarian for the Law and Justice Party, and he's angry about how Donald Tusk's new government swiftly took over TVP. They actually had a problem with the fact that there was one strong media outlet, that was the public TV, that was critical of the political party. And right now, they turned it off, they took it over. The showdown eventually led President Andrzej Duda, an ally of the Law and Justice Party, to veto the budget for the broadcaster, forcing the Tusk government to declare TVP bankrupt, starting a liquidation process. All the while, dozens of reporters at TVP were fired and replaced by an entirely new editorial staff before returning to the air with a revamped news program. This evening's program has an investigative story revealing that commentators used by TVP under the previous government were paid lucrative sums to parrot ruling party propaganda bullet points. TVP's Paweł Puska says the more he learns about how TVP was run under law and justice, the more he's disgusted. What they did was ethically and morally unheard of, he says. In my 30 years as a journalist, I've never seen anyone expect money in return for being a commentator or a guest on a show. TVP's new head of news, Gregor Sayor, says this is part of the reason it's important to make swift changes to how TVP operates and reports the news. My job is to bring back normalcy, because the last eight years were simply not normal. We need to bring back a calm demeanor to the news and shed the sensationalism it's had while it was being used for propaganda. We want to present the news of the day as a photograph, not as a painting. Sayer says the new TVP is also broadcasting news unfavorable to Donald Tusk's new government. The day we spoke, the station blew out its schedule to broadcast a live vote of no confidence in the new culture minister for the changes that were made to TVP. The vote failed. If this were back in the law and justice days, there's no way TVP would broadcast this type of vote on one of their ministers, Sayur says. A recent survey of voters in Poland shows the public seems to support the direction Donald Tusk is taking the country. 56% of voters expressed a positive opinion of how the Tusk government is making changes to Poland. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Warsaw. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, we'll recap last night's NBA All-Star Game and look at whether a return to its classic format paid off after last year's All-Star Game hit a ratings low. It's 8.29. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Hearings are underway at the U.N.'s top court on the legal consequences of Israel's 57-year occupation of Palestinian-claimed territories. They're scheduled to run through the week. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, the proceedings come amid the war between Israel and Hamas. The International Court of Justice's opinion is not legally binding and was requested by the U.N. General Assembly two years ago. It is separate from a case filed by South Africa accusing Israel of violating the Genocide Convention. More than 50 countries are due to address judges in the proceedings, including the U.S., China, and Russia. Israel is not participating directly, but has sent written observations. Police in Papua New Guinea say a gun battle involving warring tribes has left at least 26 people dead. As Scott Mayman reports, a number of local villagers were also killed. The deaths occurred at the weekend in Inga province in Papua New Guinea's remote highlands. Police Regional Commander George Karkas says this massacre is a major escalation of the tribal violence in which hired mercenaries have now been brought in. In this case... They're the ones who lost the battle. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says news of the violence is shocking and that the government is available to provide support. For NPR News, I'm Scott Mayman in Canberra, Australia. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A group of Brockton school officials want the National Guard called in to help secure the city's high school. School committee members say violence and fighting are escalating at the high school. They want Governor Moore Healy to authorize the use of the National Guard in the school. Brockton's mayor says he does not support the move. State health officials are looking at investing in a remote blood pressure monitoring system for women who are pregnant or recently had a baby. Kelly Hall of the Health Policy Commission says there are alarming trends in maternal morbidity. She says that's especially the case among black, Hispanic and Asian and Pacific Islanders as compared with white women. Hall says remote monitoring could make patients feel more empowered. Patients are equipped with technology that allows them to record their blood pressures and seamlessly transmit those readings, sometimes using a mobile phone, sometimes through cellular connections. From there, those data are received at a central point and triaged for appropriate follow-up. Hall says the program is in a preliminary stage but could be fine-tuned by late spring. The town of Brookline wants artists to help make turkeys. It's looking for people to create fiberglass turkey sculptures that'll be placed around town. Aaron Norris leads the initiative and explains that turkeys are the unofficial mascots of Brookline. A lot of people might be uh, familiar with our famous feathered friends that like to roam different parts of Brookline and take over different streets. And so just a playoff of these feathered friends of ours, 
This turkey search is part of the Brookline Art Makes Community Initiative. Artists are being asked to submit proposals to paint utility boxes and murals in various neighborhoods. The deadline for artistic proposals is next month. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. A tough weekend for Boston pro hockey with two overtime disappointments Saturday. The Bruins lost again at home, this time to the Los Angeles Kings in overtime. Boston professional women's hockey team fell to New York. Both teams skate today. The Celtics are off. Highs in the upper 30s today under clear skies. Tonight, temperatures may dip into the teens. Highs in the mid-30s tomorrow and skies will be clear again. It's 33 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Construction is underway on a controversial state military base camp in Eagle Pass, Texas. The base that was authorized by Governor Greg Abbott will span 80 acres and house up to 2,300 National Guard soldiers. Their mission is to secure the Texas-Mexico border, and the project represents the latest escalation in a tug-of-war between the Biden administration and Texas over who controls immigration on the border. Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa is here with us to share more. Pablo, so why is the state building this base? So this is another step of many over the past three years of just continuous expansion on the governor's border security mission, Operation Lone Star to deter migration on the border. But more than anything, it's a really big leap towards making that mission much more permanent. So it's a big move, but we've seen him challenge the federal government's exclusive purview on immigration enforcement from the very beginning of Operation Lone Star. You know, he's greatly expanded the militarization on the border deploying barriers, which some have called dangerous in the water, deploying heavily armed tactical marine units on the water. So we first heard about this from Governor Abbott when he spoke about the new military base from the construction site on Friday. Our goal is to make sure that we expand the effectiveness of that razor wire to uh, more areas along this border. Having the soldiers located right here, right by the river, they will amass a large army in a very strategic area. So you mentioned that it's an Eagle Pass. That's where the base is going to be built. Pretty much the symbolic center of Greg Abbott's immigration fight. What's the community in Eagle Pass's reaction? This announcement really blindsided basically everybody. You know, nobody knew anything about this. I spoke to a few people throughout the weekend, even two state reps I talked to hadn't heard about this project. This town, Eagle Pass, has gone through so much over the past few weeks and months. Uh, you know, since Texas took over Shelby Park by the Rio Grande, kicking out the federal government. This is a, a public community space where, you know, people celebrate birthdays. They've celebrated Easter. Now it's totally militarized. 
And I had a chance to speak with Jesse Fuentes, who's a longtime resident there. He owns a, a kayak business on the water uh, where those buoys are that I just mentioned. He's a plaintiff in litigation with the state over those barriers. And I had a chance to speak with him. He's created his own immigration force, his own immigration courts. I mean, why are we allowing this to happen? Why are we allowing our governor to become a dictator and authoritarian as to how policy is supposed to be enforced when it comes to immigration? So, Pablo, what are the chances then for this uh, becoming yet another legal showdown between Texas and the federal government? It's definitely a part of it. I mean, the governor has argued in a variety of ways that he believes the state has a right to secure the border. Of course, you know, constitutionally, that has always fallen under the purview of the federal government, exclusive purview of the federal government. So we're actually waiting to hear how the U.S. Supreme Court will rule on some Department of Justice lawsuits against Texas over these barriers. That's Pablo Del Rosa of Texas Public Radio. Pablo, thanks. Thank you. Two minors face charges in connection with the shooting last week that killed one person and injured 22 others, including children, at what was supposed to be a celebration, the Super Bowl victory rally for the Kansas City Chiefs. A court statement said they're being held in juvenile detention on gun-related and resisting arrest charges. The shooting yet again raises questions about how some of the youngest people in the U.S. are getting their hands on guns. To talk about this, we're joined by Jeffrey Butts. He's a researcher at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Good morning and thanks for being on the program. Hi, good morning. So how do people under 18 years old get their hands on guns? Well, it should be no mystery to any of us. There are guns all over America. I I think you've probably heard there are more guns than people in the United States. Mm -hmm. About 40% of people report in surveys that they live in a home where people own guns. So why are we shocked that teenagers can get their hands on them? Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen young people accused in high-profile shootings. We don't know the exact age of these shooters, but the most extreme example I can think of was from a little more than a year ago when a six-year-old was accused of shooting his first-grade teacher. Is gun violence from minors a growing problem, or is this a problem that's been around? Well, it's a problem that's been around, and I I think it's a mistake, actually. It's more horrifying when we hear about a young person using a gun. But they are just reflecting back to us American culture and American politics. I don't think we should be surprised. So in your view, what is the solution here? How do you prevent people and young people in particular from committing violence with guns? Well, all you have to do is visit some other countries or look them up and you find the solutions. We just live in a country where our political leaders refuse to do anything about this. I lay all these deaths at the feet of people in elected office who believe it's more important to satisfy the gun lobby and raise money off this issue than it is to save lives. What are some of the solutions? You can register handguns. You can make them um, technically impossible to fire unless you were the registered owner. That technology has been around for quite some time and we refuse to do it. Um, And I think at some point we need to embark on a system of... of, uh, I don't know how to say this, but basically we have to reduce the amount of guns in circulation. We cannot just wait for them to age out. So once they get so old and can't fire anymore, that cannot be the only way we reduce the population of guns currently in circulation. So in your view, it's not about uh, the way you charge people after violence is committed, but about the access in the beginning. 
in the first place. Yes, we we have experimented in this country for several decades with extreme forms of punishment, incarceration, and the violent crime numbers vacillate. They go up and down. When you look at it in terms of research and trying to establish the causal relationship between gun possession, punishment for guns, and violence, you don't find a really strong correlation. I think what we're looking at is the culture and politics of America. Not This is not a failure of the criminal justice system. If, if criminal justice solved all these problems, we would know it by now because we lead the world in incarcerating people. So it wouldn't be a deterrent to charge minors as an adult, for example? Sure, it's a deterrent. But the word deterrent means that it may have an effect on some people. That's not a solution to the problem. Again, we experimented with that as well. We started putting young people in the adult criminal justice system a lot during the 1980s and 90s. And the states that led the way on that did not see steeper increases in crime. There's, we did not find a strong correlation between treating juveniles as adults mm. and public safety. Jeffrey Butts is director of the Research and Evaluation Center at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the new trend of paying for things by scanning your hand. Amazon One has ruled out the tech at some Whole Foods locations, including some here in Massachusetts. They'll ask what happens with all that biometric data. Sunny in upper 30s today, clear skies in upper teens tonight, sunny in mid-30s tomorrow, it's 34 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946, and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com Boston. Cambridge-based energy company GE Vernova is one step closer to finalizing its spinoff. The company filed a registration statement with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Once the change is finalized, the company will split into power, wind, and electrification branches. Officials tell the Boston Business Journal they expect the change to be complete by April. A sandwich-based environmental consulting firm is partnering with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The Horsley-Witten Group is entering a five-year, $10 million contract with the EPA. It'll be focused on protecting the country's water resources. The group tells the Cape Cod Times it plans to implement and support programs that protect water resources during environmental or man-made emergencies. An acclaimed Boston chef is making his Top Chef debut. Valentine Howell Jr. will be competing on the show Top Chef Wisconsin this season. Howell was a finalist for the James Beard Award for Best Chef of the Northeast last year. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadil. And I'm A. Martinez. The Eastern Conference won the NBA's All-Star Game last night in Indianapolis in the highest scoring game ever. They combined with the West to score nearly 400 points. Jesse Washington is here to talk about it. He's a senior writer for ESPN's Anscape. Jesse, 211 to 186. That was the final score. Was that basketball that we saw? Because they, they weren't playing any defense at all. Man, I really don't think it was basketball. It was embarrassing. Um, and it was just sort of disgusting to those of us who really care about competitiveness and the integrity of the game, that you try your best when you go out there. And I think it's a bad look for the NBA. They're going to have to figure out something to do about this game. The viewers are going down. People don't really care as much. The dunk contest is not compelling like it used to be. NBA is going to have to do something. Yeah, because here's the thing, like, if you and I were to go out on a playground, right, and and try to match up with someone else playing two-on-two, we would still play defense, right? Because we want to stay on the court. I mean, I don't understand this. You know, I think that the explanation is one that I'm not happy to provide. And I think that these guys just don't care. They're so well-paid. They're so famous. They don't need to do anything to get any attention or more accolades. Um, They're scared of, I don't know, tweaking a pinky finger or something. And um, there's no competitiveness left. It wasn't too long ago when Kobe and Michael would go at it. When Dwayne Wade was like, I'm out here trying. Dwayne Wade broke Kobe Bryant's nose in an all-star game. And then Kobe later said, I loved it. So, you know, that spirit of the game is gone. And I think it, it threatens to carry over into the rest of NBA play. See, that's the, yeah, that is the problem, right? When they don't care about playing the game, why should we care to watch it? I know last year's All-Star game had a, a ratings low, right? So, I mean, if, if the players aren't into it, why should we be into it? Why should we want to turn on the TV? Well, you know, if you guys had not called me and said that we were <laughs> going to talk about it, I probably wouldn't have watched either. Yeah, last year yeah. the viewership was all-time low, 4.6 million. I'd be surprised if they cracked four this year. Last year, Denver coach Michael Malone, who was coaching the West, he said, quote, that is the worst basketball game ever played. This might have been the second worst. So, okay, two years ago, Jesse, the NFL decided to go with a flag football game for the Pro Bowl. They, they stopped pretending that it was an actual football game that they were playing in the Pro Bowl. So should the NBA maybe stop pretending that the All-Star game is a real game and do something else? Maybe like what I just mentioned, like a two-on-two or a three-on-three and make the pot like, I don't know, two million, three million bucks, something like that. Yeah, they got to do something. You know, they got to do something. I got a suggestion. How about the losers fly home commercial with no TSA pre-check? You know, I mean, I won't put them in coach unless you lose by 20. I mean, we're at that point. It's getting desperate out here. NBA, please do something. These are the best basketball players in the world. We should be able to see something other than 211 uncontested points. Do you think just all-star games in general are maybe a thing of the past? Because ratings go down for for all the all-star games. And I think, as you said, players don't seem to care as much anymore. It's this weird game in the middle of the season when they maybe would like a break instead of actually playing basketball. 
You know, I think they really care about being an all-star. You know, every, every athlete wants to be recognized as the best at what they do. Jason Tatum was asked before the game what it would mean to win MVP of the game. And so, you know, I think that they do care, but they know that we can see them doing these superhuman things on our phones every day of the week. And so they don't care to do those things in the actual game. It's unfortunate. Jesse, if, if you and I were to play a two-on-two, you know, I inbound the ball to you, just give the ball back. Just give the ball back, I'll shoot. You played <laughs> Got <deep>. you. <laughs> That's Jesse Got Washington, you. senior writer for ESPN's Anscape. Jesse, thanks. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Layla Faldin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with rare testimony from a British journalist who's been behind the Russian front lines in Ukraine. Also, Alexei Navalny's widow addresses EU foreign ministers as his mother tries to locate his body. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. With a week of February vacation fun, immersive new art, family tours, art making, and more. ICABoston.org. The death of Alexei Navalny has shaken the families of other political prisoners in Russia. Every single family of political prisoners in Russia can now feel the pain and the, the misery and the fright. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. My conversation with the wife of jailed opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The European Union launches a naval mission to protect cargo ships in the Red Sea from Houthi rebel attacks. Nearly all of California's population is under flood alerts as the state prepares for more rain. And dozens are dead after escalating violence between tribal groups in Papua New Guinea. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. We'll have clear skies and temperatures in the upper 30s today. It falls to the upper teens tonight, and skies stay clear. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-30s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. The folks who build homes are feeling good. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Happy President's Day. Home builders were more confident in January than they were in December, according to a recent survey from the National Association of Home Builders. The growing confidence is mostly, they say, because there's a lot of demand for housing and mortgage rates are lower than they were late last year. That said, the survey found that construction companies are still having a hard time securing the building materials they need. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. It's been especially hard to find sophisticated equipment lately, says John Kirk, the founder of the LightPath Company, a multifamily developer based in New Braunfels, Texas, that includes transformers, circuit breakers, electric meters. Anything that has a chip in it, uh, your HVAC equipment, air handlers, compressors. 
Kirk says there's high demand for that kind of equipment. That's because a lot of construction projects kicked off a few years ago. And more recently, they're moving out of the planning and design phase. Once you start construction, you start buying out the materials and assembling and building the project. Other more basic materials are getting easier to find and cheaper. That includes lumber and steel. But Susan Wachter, a real estate professor at the Wharton School, says there's still a shortage of skilled labor and available lots. As a result, labor costs have increased and land costs are still increasing. Wachter says that'll continue to put pressure on the cost of housing, especially as demand for new homes stays high. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. U.S. markets are closed to honor President's Day. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Twilio. With real-time customer data and digital communication channels in a single platform, Twilio makes delivering the right message at the right time to the right customer a reality. Learn more at Twilio.com. And by BuySide from the Wall Street Journal. BuySide's reviews and recommendations help consumers decide how to spend their time and money at wsj.com slash BuySide. And by Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, developing tomorrow's business leaders through the nationally ranked Kelly Direct Online MBA. More at iu.edu slash online MBA. Before there was money, there were hands. You just hand over the barley in exchange for the goat, or whatever people bought back then. The first currency we know of was the Mesopotamian shekel in circulation around 2150 BC. The first check is debated, but it may have been in the early 1500s in Amsterdam. The credit card was invented in 1946 in Brooklyn. PayPal came along in 1999, Apple Pay in 2014. And in 2020, we returned to the hand. Amazon launched Amazon One, a system to make purchases just by waving your hand. No embedded chip, just your hand under a scanner. Now available at Whole Foods. Here to tell us more is Wall Street Journal technology reporter Christopher Mims. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. How does this work exactly? Amazon has this sensor that takes a picture of your hand and also kind of peers through your hand. And it comes up with a unique biometric, which is just sort of digest of what your hand looks like. And then it links that to your identity and your credit cards. As they say, if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. Like, what is the business model here? I think the business model here for Amazon is they ultimately want to own that customer relationship the way that Google or Apple has tried to with um, Apple Pay or Google Pay. So that data is definitely valuable. But, you know, in the future, you could see them using it to help promote their own in-house credit card, for example. Because you'd also have to get the businesses to install a hand reader next to their credit card reader. Yes. And that is hard. I mean, we all remember how long it took for businesses to install payment terminals that accepted contactless payment. Even with the carrot of the contactless era during the pandemic, it took businesses a long time. So that's a bit of a reach for a lot of them. One place you might see this show up sooner could be, for example, to control entry into buildings. So you might wave your hand to identify yourself before you go into work. If Amazon has a scan of your hand, it has biometric data. How's that data stored? And how might it be used? And how might it be protected? Amazon insists that 
they're storing just this encrypted abstraction of your hand. Their sensor just looks at your hand, extracts the relevant features, and then just stores that as some gobbledygook that only Amazon can understand. So that's one of the ways that they claim that they're making this more secure. It's not like certain things we've heard about face recognition where they were really just based on these databases of recognizable faces that could be exploited in all kinds of ways. I mean, is Amazon alone in trying to do this? Or is there actually a ecosystem of startups trying to get into this world? There's a huge ecosystem of companies working on identifying us with parts of our bodies. So Apple's new Vision Pro headset identifies users with an iris scan. If you want to travel to Europe, there's a lot of places in the EU now where you've got to submit to some kind of biometric face scan. Then there are other folks trying to work on payments with hands. Companies like Fujitsu have been working on this for decades. And uh, the other day I saw someone was trying to make it work for vending machines. So you imagine, you know, your kid enrolls and then every time they walk by a vending machine <laughs> at their school, they're just like, I want a Coke. And they wave their hand. That sounds so dangerous <laughs> for the parents' wallets. Do you think this has a real chance of taking off? I think in the long run, it will take off because we will just become accustomed to the convenience of the world around us just instantly identifying us as who we say we are and not having to present, you know, a driver's license when you want to buy like alcohol or tobacco, let's say, not having to pull out a swipe card when you want to get into a building at work, not having to even have your phone or your credit card with you when you want to make a quick purchase at a coffee shop. It just feels so convenient that once people get used to it, they're, they're not going to want to go back. Wall Street Journal technology reporter Christopher Mims, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshaw with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Sunny and upper 30s today. Clear skies tonight as temperatures plummet to the upper teens. Sunnies and a bit cooler tomorrow, only in the mid-30s, then near 40 on Wednesday, and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 34 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.